opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed being in this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit kuci.org slash privacypiracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about cybersecurity, and I'm just so thrilled that we have a wonderful Orange County attorney with us today. Michael Hornack is a senior partner in the litigation department of the law firm of Rattan and Tucker, which is the largest full-service law firm based in Orange County, California. And he heads the firm's cybersecurity, privacy, and corporate governance practice group. His expertise extends beyond cybersecurity and privacy, and it includes such things as intellectual property dispute, the defense of consumer and shareholder class actions, and shareholder and partner governance. Mike also advises clients on data protection schemes and the practical and legal responses to data breaches, which is huge, as you well know. He's a member of the Cybersecurity Task Force of the Orange County Business Council and the former chair of the board of that council. And through his law firm, he is now a member of the newly formed UCI Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute. So we're just thrilled that you took the time out of your wonderful day to join us this morning. Thanks so much. How are you? Very good, Mari, and thank you so much for the kind introduction. Okay, so let's talk about what's going on. Have you seen any new trends in cybersecurity breaches lately? Well, amongst our clients, this seems to be that time of year for what I call low-tech phishing attacks. Uh, With tax season coming up and April 15 or April 17 deadlines, uh, we're seeing a trend that we also saw at the same time last year, Phishing attacks directed at the accounting departments of small, medium-sized, and even large firms, folks masquerading as a corporate officer and requesting the accounting departments to forward copies of W-2 forms with all the related confidential private information like Social Security number and earnings, Mm -hmm. uh, which, unfortunately... Uh, frequently, those accounting departments respond because they believe it truly is an officer of the company requesting the info. Mm. So that that should be one of the top things that they need to learn is never believe that an email is real until you call the person you know and say, do you really need this, I guess, right? Uh, that's absolutely right. That's great advice. Uh, and it's part of 
what needs to be done to train employees, particularly in the accounting and financial sectors. Yeah. You know, I just saw recently on the uh, Orange County Bar listserv that there was some scams coming out pretending to be the State Bar of California asking for information. So, you know, nobody's immune from this, are they? No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, so what are some of the most common mistakes you see individuals make uh, that, that, that puts their personal privacy at risk? You know, frequently you see employees of companies who have, you know, their own password and ID at the office, but we find that frequently they're using the same password because it's easy to remember on personal accounts, mm-hmm. on e- email accounts, things like that. And, and thus, if there is a breach in one of those places, it gives potential access by the hacker to other locations. Right, right. What else? Well, we, we also see, and, and I come across this personally all the time, old forms, particularly by medical care providers and others, requesting social security numbers to be written down when frequently they're really not needed by the provider, and it just puts that person at greater risk that you know, the document or the social security number is going to be disclosed unknowingly. Oh, exactly, uh, especially because, you know, years ago our social security number was our health insurance number, but back in, I think, 2003, the legislature changed that. So now you have a health insurance number. What the heck do they need your social security number for, right? That's right, and yet you still see a lot of health care providers asking for that information. Mm-hmm. Personally, I never provide it. I and I've never. <laughs> <laughs> I put NA, not a, not applicable. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. A- a- absolutely. And, you know, the other thing I see commonly is people receive so many emails in the day that they'll open an email from someone they don't recognize and click on a hypertext link uh, and there happens to be malware or some other problem with it uh, just because they're in such a hurry uh, that they don't think twice. So we see that happen all the time, and that is the basis by which a lot of hackers get into networks. Yeah, and also when you get an email, this is the thing that always scares me, but I'm really careful about this. When you get an email from somebody who is in your email contact file and it has an attachment and it says something like, look at this, I never look at it. I always like forward it back to them and say, did you send this to me? You know, <laughs> so that's another one that people will do and then they're caught, right? The, the, everything is exposed. I think that's right, and and that's very good advice to simply forward it back. And one place we see this happen a lot, too, is people uh, send in their resume to companies saying, hey, I'm interested in looking for a job. But because so many people do that, there are also hackers out there who claim to be sending their resume, and lo and behold, it's not their resume at all. Right, right. Or they, they pretend to be employers, and then you send your resume, and they ask for the social, and they ask for every bit of information, and then you give it to some some fraudster, right? You, you bet. You yeah, bet. yeah. So, you know, we have a lot of people driving by in Irvine. We've got our own little mini, mini, 
uh, minuscule <laughs> Silicon Valley in areas in Orange County. So are, are small to medium-sized companies at risk to the, as much as the larger companies from your perspective? From our perspective, every bit uh, at risk. I think mm. that with the large companies, uh, they were hit early on, and they started building their defenses early on. Uh, but there's this attitude among the medium and smaller companies that I'm not a target. What do I need to worry about? Yeah. And and frequently it's those smaller companies that don't have the wherewithal or the cybersecurity and all the virus detection devices that are most at risk. Right, right. And, you know, I was on the, we, the Office of Privacy Protection, um, which was now incorporated into the attorney general's office but i was on their committee and we put together at uh, privacy.ca.gov a whole list of things that small companies can do to protect themselves and that's still there with you know a whole like abcs of of privacy protection so it is it's really tough for small companies and small law firms too i mean they they don't have the kind of um IT people and the security people that can help them, and they're just as vulnerable as anybody else, even a mom-and-pop store that does business on the Internet. Right, Mike? That's absolutely right. And, you know, even if a law firm has an internal IT department, frequently they're great at running a network, but not necessarily up on the ever-evolving attack schemes of hackers and, and how to actually protect that network both from outsiders and insiders. Right. And then if they are hacked, sometimes they don't even know that they're hacked. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's very true. And I know the statistics always change on that. I think the latest I heard was about six months on average uh, before companies actually learn that they have been hacked from the time the hack happened. Yeah. Okay, so people think, okay, well, all right, companies, i got to be a little bit worried about. What about government? Is that safe? Has the government, uh, all the government agencies, have they got a lot of protection that you feel like when you give them your sensitive information or they have your sensitive information, even the Social Security Administration, are they safe? You know, I don't feel any safer <laughs> from government than, than I do, frankly, from a private industry. Uh, and I guess there's a couple of reasons for that. In uh, an example is, you know, a year or so, we had the issue with the Office of Personnel Management right. uh, where a lot of sensitive files were hacked, including you know, fingertip records and others from those who were attempting to obtain high security clearances. But even locally, we have the recent uh, attack, a malware attack that was really a ransomware attack on the Orange County Transportation Agency, mm. uh, which dramatically affected that entity and, and kind of proves your point in mind that it, it is really difficult to prepare for these attacks unless you do sit down and figure out what your attack plan is and how you're going to respond to a particular incident, who's going to be assigned to do what when an incident is believed to have occurred and move forward on that. Yeah, and I was thinking with the government, they, you know, they can't, 
pay the high salaries that um, that these hackers get. <laughs> you know, if you're wearing a black hat, you can make a lot more money than if you're wearing a white hat, right? You know, I think that's particularly true, Amari, in the government sector where, you know, they may be hang, hamstrung by, you know, what they're able to pay in salaries, and yet salaries for folks who are experts in this area are going up and up because of the limited number of professionals that exist, the need to, you know, obtain security clearances and the like. It's tough for government to do it on their own. Yeah, and I think it's tough for everybody to do it on their own. So what about, what are some of the um, the statutes that you can, you know, the criminal statutes that, that you can get the bad guys, and and then how often do they get these bad guys anyway? Or bad girls. I don't want to just. I, I don't want to be discriminatory. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, you, you know, there's a there's a, a lot of legislation out there from individual states and the federal government. I mean, we have the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act from the federal government. Uh, we have the Wiretap Act, and California has its own Penal Code section that prohibits unauthorized use of electronics uh, and computers to defraud, deceive, or extort money. But frankly, the problem is identifying who these hackers are. And even if they are identified or if the IP address can be identified, uh, it's frequently someone who's out of the jurisdiction, uh, someone who is very difficult to apprehend and and prosecute and may be overseas in, in a foreign country. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's even worse. But even when it's here, I had um, a victim of of identity theft that I've been trying to help, and I was able to get the IP address because the perpetrator actually um, bought some credit reports with my client's credit card. <laughs> and so I we I have friends and experience from dealing with so many identity theft victims. I know these people for years and I talked to the head of fraud and so he was able to give me the IP address um, of the computer, but it was relayed. So it's hardly, you know, they then to try and go from that relay. Do you know what I mean? They mask the IP address. So even if you have the IP address, it's really hard to get back and find the person. I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's crazy. So, I mean, it's such an easy crime, and it's so lucrative. And, you know, rarely are you going to get caught, right? And and hence the problem. You can't rely on the laws to protect you in that regard. Exactly. Protect yourself. Yeah. yeah. And and how about um, the training of law enforcement? I know I'm a sheriff reserve PSR here in Orange County, and I, I was on the high-tech crime unit. And, um, you know, the, the people that were helping the sheriff's department were were really, you know, thank goodness, you know, pretty good at security. But... You know, what about training for law enforcement? How good is that? Well, you know what? It's starting to get better. Uh, and and this might be a good segue to, to mention the UCI Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute. Uh, it's actually one of their goals is to assist in law enforcement cybersecurity training, and they've already started in, in some of those tasks and putting together programs that 
ought to be able to be duplicated elsewhere. Oh. We've also got, uh, you know, the Cal State Fullerton program. I think they have a major now in the cybersecurity area. So you're starting to see education there, but there's a huge need that's unfilled. And you've got a lot of officers out there who don't know what to do when it comes to, you know, you've got a phone, uh, for example, in the, in the Apple a situation and how you get information on it that might relate to a crime having been committed. Right. Uh, they just don't have the technical training. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I think that as we're sitting here on the campus, you know, talking about this, if anybody's listening in, you know, that are students that are thinking about what should I do for my major. <laughs> If you're if you're decent at at math and science and you love this kind of stuff and you're a techie, boy, cybersecurity I think is really a very hot area, and um, and stressful. But it's it's really an important area, and I would imagine that it's uh, got uh, some good income for you if you go into that field. I think that's very true, and I think the need's going to be out there for a long while. Because it's going to take a long while to catch up and, and get the number of professionals in the area that we need. Yeah. I want to go back to what you just brought up. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about this this new console that you're on? I think that's fascinating. Sure. Uh, it's the UCI Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute, and it's a program that was put into place uh, among various of the, the schools there at UCI graduate schools, and even the law school. And Dean Erwin Cherminsky of the law school was instrumental in helping to uh, set it up. Mm. And it is a program where the participants are involved either on pushing privacy issues or security issues or their private industry. And the effort is to pull together all those folks, not only to assist in training, but to have kind of interdisciplinary, technical, scientific, legal, and policy research on difficult problems uh, and to kind of engage the community, do some creative research that leads to better protections in various uh, fields. Uh, and right now they're debating some of the things that ought to be focused on. And incidentally, you mentioned identity theft. One of the programs being considered uh, and high on the list is putting together a, a program that involves UCI law students who help individuals who have had their identity uh, stolen and try to work through the problems with, with them on it. So it, it, it's exciting to see that happen. Right, right. Well, I've been around that for a long, long time, and I wrote the uh, 530.5 through 530.8. Um, I help write that with the DA in, in L.A., which covers identity theft. So it's been a long time that I've been working on identity theft and helping victims. So I'm glad to see that um, we can get some, maybe some free help from some of these law students. We can talk about that more a little bit later. But let's talk about um, giving some help to those business owners that are driving by, those who are CEOs of medium-sized companies, maybe they're presidents of small companies. What what do you think, what kind of recommendations do you have for them that they can better protect customer data and employee data? Well, I think they're, one, they need to recognize that they may not have the, 
the staff internally to protect themselves. So I always recommend that they obtain a security audit, a cybersecurity audit, mm -hmm. to evaluate really what their risk is, usually hiring an outside consultant to do that, and, and even to do some testing and to see whether that consultant can breach the security of their network. Uh, so certainly that's on the top of my list. Also, uh, assessing what confidential information the business has and whether it really needs to be online, and if so, what needs to be online and how it's protected and whether certain things ought to be taken offline or old data destroyed. You know, the game used to be, hey, this all this data we collect from customers is useful information to us. I think the tide has turned on that and folks recognize that having that information is just as dangerous <laughs> and pr probably more dangerous and do we really need to, to keep old transaction files uh, that don't serve any purpose. But thirdly, kind of having a written plan to deal with a cyber breach, as we uh, discussed briefly earlier, and training employees so they recognize the risks of phishing and emails and, and common breaches. Uh, and of course, not sharing passwords with anyone. I mean, those are some of the common recommendations from a laundry list that I frequently uh, go over with clients. Oh, yeah. And there is, um, you know, it's, I think doing like a little privacy and security audit on yourselves. And there's many of those around that if you're a small company and you can't afford to hire a consultant to do everything, you can do some privacy audits from the Office of Privacy Protection at privacy.ca.gov. And then you can hire the consultant and say, hey, this is what we found. What else, are, <laughs> what else is out there that we're doing wrong, you know, to help us? Because people think, you know, penny wise, pound foolish if I, I can't afford to do it. But then if something happens, you know, you really are going to be in trouble. And lately, there's been some more cybersecurity insurance. Um, do any of your clients have that kind of cybersecurity insurance? You know, uh, some of our clients do, uh, and it's becoming more and more popular. Unlike other kinds of insurance, though, that have been around for a long while and their standard policies, the cyber policies out there are really kind of unique and, and catered and different depending on who is issuing the policy. So you need to look at them closely to see really what kind of protection they're affording you, whether it covers you know, business loss that might occur, whether it covers the cost of notifying folks whose data has been stolen and regulatory agencies of the breach, whether it covers attorney's fees that might be involved in, in dealing with the breach or, or clearing uh, malware from a network. All those sorts of things are very unique and ought to be looked at closely. But I believe in the end we're going to find that more and more companies will find it useful and recognize that there's a value to obtaining insurance for these kinds of events. Right, right, because most of the insurance, other business insurance, are kind of excluding cyber security. 
So um, they more and more so. Yeah. More and more so, so. Then, yeah. then you're then you're really you know with all these costs, the costs are not just the notification and the, and and having to help possible victims and pay for things like credit monitoring or identity theft protection services or whatever. It gets really, sure. really expensive. I know when I looked at, um, I've done some work with AIG and they have a cybersecurity uh, policy. And one of the things that you have to do is you actually have to be before part of your application is to do your own audit. And they ask you all these things. So actually, their application is helpful in in deciding whether you really are protected. So they have their own little audit right in their application. And I don't know what other companies have, but I saw that and I thought, hmm, you know, actually, this isn't a bad idea to just look at this application. And then uh, and kind of uh, clean up your act before you apply. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, I think many of the policies that are uh, coming out are like that uh, because the insurance companies, of course, want to know what you're doing to protect yourselves. They don't want you to simply decide, I'm not going to update my network or the security of my network. I'm just going to buy insurance. Right, uh, right. <laughs> So what about cloud? Everybody's in the cloud and people don't realize like, you know, we back up in the cloud. We're we're in the cloud when we're on LinkedIn. We're in the cloud when we're in Facebook. What about the cloud? What what do you think about that? You know what? I think that is becoming more and more popular and probably becoming safer if you're going to a reputable source for it. But at least in the law firm setting, uh, you see really only the small law firms going to the cloud. And, and feeling protected by it. The medium to larger size firms like us, we're not quite ready to make that move. In part, it's not knowing what kind of security controls and processes and procedures are there. And it's also, in part, uh, a concern over client confidences and confidential information and not having control over it and recognizing that instead it's up at the cloud, which really means it's on the service provider server somewhere, usually somewhere else in the country, somewhere else in the state, uh, and you don't know what procedures are being utilized or whether government might subpoena the data and you're, you don't have control over it at that point. So uh, I, the trend is there, uh, right. but still concerns, you know, stay with the reputable providers. Right. And some cloud providers aren't even in this country. <laughs> So, so I mean that's even worse, right? Like if your if if your whole system goes down and you have trouble getting it from that other country. So I think I think you're wise when you were saying really you know look at that agreement and see and ask a lot of questions about them. You know where is the data and you know how how would I be able to get it? Back? How long would it take me to get it back? And what if you're down? You know, I mean there's sure. so many questions to ask. But then even if you have your own backup there's you know there's problems with that you know some people say well i keep my backup you know in my garage at home well what if there's a fire you know it's it's scary i mean it's you know we are so dependent on our computers and the backup for it it's um and it's it's crazy i mean even for me i mean i i encrypt everything before it even gets into the cloud, I do have a cloud provider, and I've asked all the questions, and they are in this country, and I've gotten lots of recommendations. But I still encrypt 
the sensitive data before it even goes in there. Because yeah, I think that's a good idea. And, yeah. of course, there's a, a balance there between slowing down your business operations or your transactions, the time it takes to encrypt, etc., uh, slowing down perhaps the speed of your computer if you don't have uh, a newer computer uh, and the safety you get from having it encrypted. But uh, uh, we do the same thing. We rec- recommend that it be encrypted. Yeah. Would you believe that we are just out of time? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. <laughs> we could have talked for hours. It's, you're wonderful. Well, why don't we just have give you a website and... Um, it's going to be time to go. And do you have a website for that new console as well? You know, I don't believe that the Cybersecurity uh, Policy Institute has its own website yet, uh, but we do here at Rutan, and it's www.rutan.com. We also periodically publish newsletters in the cybersecurity area, and we have another one coming out in the next couple of weeks. So folks are welcome to visit our site. And so those updates will be right on your website so people can learn more about what's going on in the law and cybersecurity, right? That's correct. Well, thank you so much. And we now we're neighbors, so we'll have to get together. So thank Marie, you. Marie, it was a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me, too. And keep up the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank Take you. care. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.